0: This episode of Free John Juca was originally published on the Crawl Space podcast, April 20th, 2018. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance doing this intro
1: from the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. The Crawl Space Studios were once again nestled deep within the Crawl Space Studios, and we have such a fascinating, such a good interview, such a genuine person that we're about to uh, introduce to the listeners. I love it.
0: Seriously, amazing story with an amazing woman, and we travel to New York City. To interview Doreen Quinn Giuliano, who is, of course, John Juca's mom. We interviewed her at Audio Boom Studios in Midtown Manhattan.
1: And what this woman has done, if anybody is following the John Juca case, if you're not following the John Juca case, please follow it. Uh, we are along for the ride with this one. He's serving 25 years to life. All indications point to that he's innocent. And his mother has been an advocate for him on such a level that it really is mind-blowing what she's done in order to prove his innocence, and it's working.
0: And this is definitely one of my favorite interviews ever uh, that we've ever done so far, Lance. No disrespect to anyone else that we've ever interviewed. But this one is just special uh, and kind of emotional, and uh, it's really... Real.
1: It's really intense. There's a lot of gravity to it and a lot of meaning to this one. And make sure you listen to the very end because there's a little treat at the very end. And it's uh it's the work of uh John Juca uh in audio form and it's it's fantastic. So
0: please follow us on Twitter at Crawl Space Pod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, and we have recently launched a Patreon page. So check us out on Patreon at crawlspace podcast
1: the patreon page will give you monthly little treats for a certain level and uh, th- it's really worth it we have fun doing it it's sort of a uh a release on our end and uh so far people are really enjoying these candid moments that we've had
0: so thank you to all our
1: patrons so far eva
0: included but really all of them so thank you very much and we hope you like this interview with doreen quinn giuliano Welcome to Crawl Space. We are here in Midtown Manhattan, Audio Boom Studios. I'm Tim here with Lance and Mother Justice,
1: Doreen Juliano. How are you?
2: Good, good. Doreen Quinn. Quinn. Oh. Juliano. Ah,
1: oh, okay. We are at the Audio Boom Studios, and it's exciting to uh, to come here because um, it's a gorgeous studio, and it's super exciting to have you here. And, and thank you. Yeah, and meet
0: you in person after reading about you and what you've done. And what you've been through is kind of remarkable. It's unheard of. Yeah, it,
1: I, I admire what you've done. It's crazy. The energy and the dedication is like mind-boggling to me.
0: So obviously, John is is uh, serving twenty-five to life for uh, felony murder from a two thousand five conviction. Correct. And so. But as far as an update goes, there is a new trial that's supposed to happen this summer, right?
2: Yes. Uh, it was set for May 1st. Wonderful. Uh, that's what I've been begging the courts for for all these years. Just yes. give my son a fair trial. That's all we ask for is a fair trial. And finally, we've, we've gotten it. We struggled. And this is based on uh, prosecutorial misconduct, very serious prosecutorial misconduct. Throughout the years, it was based on juror misconduct, but we were denied Mm -hmm. on the juror misconduct without a hearing, and that's unheard of. How can you make a decision without holding a hearing and looking at the evidence?
0: Right. Right. You had a recording of someone who was on the jury who uh, said he did not know John or anyone to do with the case.
2: He knew a lot of people uh, connected to this case, and he read the newspapers, and this particular juror uh, swore um, to tell the truth. He committed perjury. He lied to sneak on the jury and convict my son, and I've exposed that with several tape recordings. John's lawyer submitted them to the judge, and without holding a hearing, he just um, made a decision. And all we asked for is if he would listen to those recordings and hold a hearing so that we could subpoena the juror and anyone involved, and then they would have had to tell the truth. Instead, Judge Alan Maris decided not to hold a hearing and admonished me. What he did was actually stunning. He said that I'm gonna call upon the legislators to create a law for people like you. And my lawyer said, with all due respect, Your Honor, there is actually a law, and it's called contempt of court and perjury, and the juror is the one who committed it.
1: I wanna go back a little bit in time. When did you first start to suspect that something was amiss with the, with the trial? When was there a moment where you were like, I got to get on the inside somehow?
2: First of all, there was contradictory testimony. Nothing matched. There was lie after lie after lie. And then the jury came back with guilty, a guilty verdict. So obviously there's something wrong. So early on, one of John's friends sat in the audience and he recognized one of the jurors. He didn't know that he wasn't allowed to be in the audience because he was on the witness list. And when you're on the witness list, I don't know if you know this, if you're on the witness list, you cannot sit in the audience. So he wasn't aware of that, so he had gotten thrown out. And then about a month or two after the trial, he had told a friend of my son John's that he recognized one of the jurors. His name is James. James came back and said that Billy recognized one of the jurors. And this is a month or two after the verdict. Correct. I went to go see Billy, and I asked him if It was true, and he said yes. He lives in the neighborhood. That's how it all began. I knew that that juror should not have been there because he was influenced by outside influences.
1: So what did you do?
2: I first hired a private investigator. That didn't work. In my opinion, if a man with a suit comes knocking at your door, especially if you're from Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, you're not opening the door to answer any questions. Mm. so I knew that I was going to have to do it myself to go and ask him what happened in that deliberating room that they came back within two hours with a guilty verdict on absolutely no evidence there was no forensics there was no DNA there was no eyewitnesses so why the guilty verdict
0: so you were determined to find out From this juror so you changed your identity?
2: I did change my identity and the reason why I decided to do that because I knew if I knocked on his door and started asking him questions he is the man who put my son away I figured he was gonna slam the door in my face so I thought I would just change my identity change my name and just get close with him and and ask him what happened and it worked like a charm to be honest.
1: It's incredible. <laughs> your your even your Wikipedia page reads like the spy novel. Take us through the process of what where your mind was at when you made the decision to change your name and and create a new identity in order to essentially go undercover to get this guy to talk about something that you weren't a hundred percent sure he was going to even talk about, right?
2: Like I said, I hired private investigators. I had went through four over the whole the period of uh, my son being incarcerated. And I knew, I just knew I had to do it myself. And it wasn't really a hard decision. You know, I just changed my appearance uh, by dyeing my hair, uh, losing uh, 15 pounds, working out. I was just hoping that he didn't recognize me.
0: Did he know you or know what you look like or just from the trials he would have known, or the trial, he wouldn't know what you look like?
2: Well, I sat like 50 feet from him for two weeks I mean he stared at me the whole jury stared at me for a whole two weeks I don't know how he didn't recognize me to be honest
0: incredible yeah
2: I did have like mousy brown hair and I went platinum blonde and I did lose 15 pounds and uh, makeup and high heels and tight-fitting clothes you know I was I was desperate
0: and you said you were from California?
2: I did, I did. I was riding my bike past his house, you know, trying to get his attention. And to be totally honest with you, he ignored me for months. And it was his friend that actually whistled at me. Yeah, his friend whistled at me, and I had to to seize the opportunity and just pull my bike around and start talking to his friend, Mm -hmm. who happened to be married. And he was flirting with me. And then eventually, the juror, juror number eight, He told me that he sells marijuana, and if I was interested, uh, to call this number. So I waited a week, and then I called him. And I have to tell you also, I was just looking to find out what went wrong in that jury room. And I've learned so much more than I anticipated, so much more.
0: Yeah. So so, what happened? You called the number and you said, uh, I'd like to buy a dime bag or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so you met him? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, But
2: before that, you have to keep in mind, I was watching his routine for months and I already knew that he sold pot way before he even mentioned it to me.
1: Well, that's incredible to me that you already knew that he sold pot. Mm -hmm. And instead of you approaching him, you must have the patience of a a, a rattlesnake. I mean, I don't even know what to compare it to, but there were probably a 100 opportunities for you to approach him. But you made it seem like it was his idea. You it, made it yeah. his idea. Yeah. You said it's amazing that he didn't recognize you. He he wasn't seeking you. Well, he, what a tightrope you had to walk. Uh, yeah. You know, because you can't let him know that you're eager
0: to meet him.
2: Right. I actually it, turned my back to him completely, and I was giving his friend all the attention. And you say I had patience of a rattlesnake
0: I, yeah. uh, a rattlesnake's patient yeah. well i picture <laughs> like a, oh, oh. I, I, picture I don't
2: think they have any patience I, right? I, no i picture I like a rattlesnake
1: s- is like hanging out hanging out a silent and, rattlesnake maybe you were yeah. like rattling
0: for a while and just kind of waiting to strike yeah. like something that waits i don't know right.
2: well i'm a mom so yeah. all moms know i mean you have to have a lot of patience right with your kids i mean patience of a saint <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: seriously yeah
2: there you go patience yeah. of a saint lance i'm trying to think right. of something, yeah. that, like,
1: try. Some, <laughs> something that like strikes something i don't know
2: in waiting and then strikes waiting. when the time is right yeah that's
1: <laughs> what i was getting at but <laughs> anywho
2: well i want to say that you know this wasn't easy mm. you know i was a nervous wreck and i would just cover up my um anxiety and my nervousness with the you know, the new neighborhood. I'm from California, and I don't know where this is and that is. And he wanted to help me to find the right places to eat and where I could get good coffee. And I was lost a few times in my car, and I would call him and say I was lost. Meanwhile, I was sitting in my living room. Uh, He wanted to help me out, you know, with drugs, with directions, and just, um, you know, with uh companionship i didn't know anyone in the neighborhood
0: how did he not sense an accent did you did you try to lose your accent
2: oh i did i practiced for a long time but then i slipped up and he said i remember one time he said to me you actually sound like you're from brooklyn (laughs) and i said to him thank you i've been practicing i've been taking classes it's working
1: wow so i just
2: like thought on my feet real quick
1: yeah Did anyone know you were doing
2: this? No, not really. My husband, a little, but we were already in separate bedrooms at the time. Okay. So I gave him very little information, and he was like, yeah, whatever. I don't approve, but whatever. I don't think he really understood the extent that uh, I went through to do this. My son, when I was visiting my son in prison, he kept saying, Ma, you're losing weight. Ma,
1: John never knew. No, no, no. John did
2: not know until the end. And then he even asked one time after like three or four months, he said, Ma, do you have a boyfriend? (laughs) (laughs) Because I was changing, changing right before his eyes. Right. What did you say? I said, oh, John, please.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. He knows now, right? Well,
2: I got to tell you, when I finally told him, He cried.
1: Oh, God, yeah. He cried.
2: He just put his head down and he was crying. He was like, oh, my goodness, Ma. He was worried. Jason Allen, juror number eight, could have easily uncovered me and hurt me. It right. it, wasn't, it wasn't easy. It was very scary.
0: So how long were you pretending to be juror number eight's friend?
2: I I'm not sure. Maybe six months, maybe eight months. I kind of lost track of time.
0: And then he started talking about the case?
2: You know, he started talking about the case very early on.
1: Did you bring it up? How did it come up? Picture this. Yeah.
2: Cooking for him because I rented an apartment really close to his place. I started cooking for him and, you know, buying wine and he would bring marijuana over. Keep in mind, I'm 47 years old. I do not smoke pot. And I was pretending I was 37. The last time I smoked pot, I was like 20 years old. So I'm saying, okay. Do I smoke pot and then get paranoid or silly or stupid? I can't blow my cover here. And then I was thinking, all right, just don't inhale. It it brought me such anxiety over the decision just to smoke pot or not. So we're sitting in my living room and the music is blasting and he lights up and he passes it to me. I turn my head to the right and pretending I'm smoking, keep giving it back to him. And then all of a sudden he wants to talk about the case.
1: He brings it up first. All stoned.
2: Yeah. The reason why I came to Brooklyn from California is because I pretended I was going to work for this clinic called Second Look, which takes a second look at cases of those who are wrongfully convicted. So that was my way of bringing up that subject. That's brilliant. So then he said to me, I was on a high profile case once. And he starts to talk about it. And- The music was blasting, and I didn't want him to talk about it because I wasn't prepared. I did have the recorder on, but I didn't know if it was picking it up. So every time he wanted to talk about it, I kept changing the subject, and I I was literally shaking because I knew if he told me now, he wasn't going to tell me the same story another day when there was no music on. So I just kept cutting him off and cutting him off. Wow
1: yeah and I'm anxious enough listening to you retell the story I can't imagine you're sitting on the couch trying to figure out how to make it look like you're smoking marijuana yeah. and the music's playing and and that's the time that he brings it up and yeah. you have a recorder on you that's recording yeah. at the time it's like you've been fishing and finally you got a nibble but it's not quite right mm-hmm. so then when was the time right?
2: it was uh, several days Of recording. It wasn't just one particular day because one time he would talk about how he read the newspapers and the judge instructed the jury not to read the newspapers and he did. And he told me, I read the newspapers all the time. And then there was another day when he started telling me about how he hung out with John's friends and he knew all of John's friends. And then it was a different day when he said his cousin Linda actually dated one of my son's friends. And these are the things that I found out that I had no idea about when I went in. I was shocked. Then he goes on to say that he didn't know my son or his co-defendant but he knew all his friends what they did their behavior so he further goes on to tell me about how they disrespected their mothers and there was holes in their wall so he was actually in their house then he goes on to tell me that he hated my son because he was a Jew and I'm I remember exactly where I was standing I was standing in the living room looking at him and he said yeah that's my right i have a right to hate jews and he was a jew and i said who was a jew and he said john he was a jew he lived over in that jew neighborhood with the big mansions but yet he drove a small car and he pretended that he was broke but he came from money and i was stunned He said to him i says but how do you know that he was jewish and he said to me his last name stop it his last name
0: yeah it's about as dumb as you can get yeah, Juka. Yeah,
2: and I had to keep a, a straight face. Yeah, uh, to be honest with you, I wanted to punch him right in his face.
0: What was that like for you when you finally started to hear from this juror number eight about him knowing him and like how did you like I met? We said I would I would be shaking. How did you not? Explode. No,
2: I wasn't going to slip up at this point. I was too far in. I became D Quinn. I became D Quinn. I was there for many, many hours and days and weeks and months. I slipped up once, and I introduced myself to someone as D Quinn. And then I said, "What am I doing? I'm Doreen Juliano." I knew I was in too deep.
0: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> So what does John think about that now? We
2: were cheated. Yeah. We were cheated at a fair trial. He was devastated, beyond devastated, because case after case after case, that was reversed on far less juror misconduct. We had so much juror misconduct. He read the newspapers. He hung out with John's friends. His cousin Linda ended up marrying one of John's friends. He believed he was Jewish. He told me one day when he was asking to get off of work so he could serve on the jury. He asked his uh boss and his initially his boss said no. And then he told him what case it was and his boss told him, Okay, I give you permission, but I want to see that kid fry. That's an outside influence
0: mm-hmm.
2: from your boss. Yeah. Your boss who pays you your paycheck. Right. So don't you want to please your boss?
0: Right. And this juror number eight was the first one in the deliberation room who was trying to push a guilty verdict?
2: Well, the way he explains it to me, and these are recordings that Mm -hmm. I submitted to the judge. We have them transcribed. He said that several of the jurors said to him when they were deliberating, but there was no evidence. And he said, I know he's guilty. Because I know, just trust me, I know. So he is bringing his outside influence into the courtroom.
0: Yeah. So you called your lawyer, obviously, after After these, this or, thing
2: was over, I right. felt like I had enough.
0: Okay, so you didn't talk to your lawyer or John's lawyer throughout the oh, whole operation? Oh, no,
2: nobody knew nothing. Wow. My wow. husband knew a little, but not much.
1: Wow.
0: And, and I,
2: I d- did it all by myself. Nobody guided me. Nobody told me what to do.
1: First of all, it's terrifying enough to hear you tell that story about a juror saying something like that. That's just terrifying to think of that that even goes on at all. I think our our, our listeners are probably thinking, well, she had recording of this guy. You ended up getting screwed out of out of some juror misconduct right. lawsuit.
2: That goes back to the judge. John's lawyer submitted a motion on juror misconduct we were denied a hearing, and the public didn't get to listen to the recordings. It was devastating, beyond devastating.
1: You have you have recordings?
2: Uh, several recordings. If we would have been granted that hearing, we could have subpoenaed the juror, and then he would have had to get up on that stand and swore to tell the truth, and he would have had to come clean. Early on, when you are selected as a juror, you take a questionnaire, If you know anyone or if you know about it in the newspapers, he lied. Mm -hmm. He committed perjury and contempt of court. And that would have came out if we had a hearing. We were denied a hearing.
0: So Judge Morris is Marris. Judge
2: Alan Marris is a fraud. He said that he listened to the tapes and he felt like they were stopped and started and that they were edited. Our argument was let's hire a professional, to take a look at the tapes. He refused to do that. Our system is supposed to be a truth-seeking system. So let's search for the truth. Let's not cover it up. Let's hold a hearing. Let's have an analyst look at those tapes. I challenged him to get an analyst to look at those tapes. Instead, what they did was they buried this. Why do you think that is? We have a corrupt justice system. And when they have a conviction, they want to hold on to that conviction. They do not want to admit that they made a mistake and they put the wrong person behind bars. It makes the whole system look bad. It makes the public think that our government is putting away innocent people. So they have to do whatever they can to keep this hidden from the public.
0: So this Maris, was he the judge that Oversaw the trial? Correct. He was.
2: Pro-prosecution. Oh, so
1: he's not going to turn. He's not going to say, oh, whoops. Like, my bad on all that previous stuff. Thanks for these tapes. It's probably going to make me look like I have egg on my face in the long run.
2: But wouldn't the public have more respect for him if he says, let me get to the bottom of this? Well, that's, yeah. When you said,
1: you know, they have a certain perception that they have to maintain for the public, I'm pretty sure that this makes them look far worse. But why doesn't anyone ever learn these lessons? You get stories like this all the time. We just had... One in Massachusetts where a man was in prison for 34 years. He was released. and He was
2: released after 34 years. That means he was denied, 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 denied for years. Those very same prosecutors and judges who tried to take the credit for letting him out after 34 years are the ones who denied, denied, denied. They don't deserve no credit. The guy spent 34 years in prison.
1: That looks way worse than them saying... There was a mistake, and we're fixing it.
2: No. You see, because when they get convictions, like, for instance, the prosecutor in my son's case, Anna Sigal she brags about her 35 straight wins. 35. And this is one of the reasons why they do not want to overturn my son's case, because then they have to take a close look at the other 34. Mm. And she, I, I believe she put away some pretty bad guys, but she may have put... Innocent men behind bars sure, also.
0: It sure opens the door. It
2: opens the door to take a closer look at those cases.
0: Same thing with Judge Maris, I would say. I know he's retired now. He retired in 2016, which is probably good a riddance. good thing. Yeah, good written to the dishonorable Judge Maris.
1: Can you say the last name of the prosecutor again?
2: Anna Siga Nicolazzi.
0: And she's, she's on a reality show, is it? She's got a TV show?
2: Um, yeah, she's on a show now for the ID channel. You see, the problem with our system is most of them who commit misconduct, serious misconduct, uh, excel. They get um, rewarded. They become judges. They become defense attorneys. They aren't held responsible for their misconduct, and they're taking lives.
1: I would like to think that if i was in that situation the record wouldn't mean so much to me like i wouldn't be i would like to think just on my own morals that i don't need to go 34 and 35 and 0 that it's not a sporting event you know i would i i guess but i guess once you've reached that point it kind of reminds me of like a boxer
0: like a boxer floyd mayweather right but actually having paid one of one of the judges one time
1: for what you have a tv deal now on id
0: yeah but if she you wanted to
2: become a judge okay lance or a defense attorney um do you think you're gonna get hired or become that judge if you have a few losses on your um on your card right no they're gonna take the one who is a constant winner
1: so broken i'm so fired yeah. up right now yeah i knew i was gonna yeah. get fired up with this too
2: they're gonna take the one who's a constant winner that's who they're gonna take so
1: but in the meantime yeah you your, your son is sitting in prison.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I imagine uh, Judge Maris
0: declining a, uh, a hearing w- was heartbreaking for you and, and John and the whole team.
2: Yeah, because we brought him the evidence and we begged him to take a look at the evidence. Yeah. And hold a hearing and let's get to the bottom of this. Instead, he buried it.
0: You know, sexual performance issues are more common than you think. I know. Do you? How
1: well do you know? Well, I know. I did some research on it. Over 25% of new ED cases are guys under 40. That's kind of bizarre to me, but forHims.com
0: himscom is a solution, a one-stop shop for hair loss. Okay, they do that. They do skin care, which is valuable. Which is awesome. And they do sexual wellness
1: for men. And HIMS connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat ED. Right.
0: Thanks to Science, ED can be optional. Well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you combat ED.
1: And these are prescription solutions backed by science, and one of the best parts of this whole thing, no awkward doctor visits, no lines. Save hours by going to 4
0: Yeah, you just answer a few quick questions and chat with the doctor for a confidential review, and then products are shipped directly to your door.
1: Tim, this is hard made easy. Say hello to your little friend.
0: So try Hymns for a month today for just $5. We'll get you started for just 5 bucks while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 crawlspaceED. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash crawlspaceED. And that E in crawlspace... You can, uh, you can use that one in the ED. So, not two E's, just one. Crawl spaced. It looks like crawl spaced.
1: Yeah, think crawl space. Fourhymns.com slash crawl spaced.
0: So, what happened from then till
1: now?
2: Well, to fast forward the clock, after the jury misconduct, I was beyond devastated. After I climbed out of my bed and put my boots back on, I dove right back in and then I found very serious prosecutorial misconduct. We ended up, thank God, we ended up getting a reversal on the conviction on the prosecutor's misconduct.
0: And how did that go down?
2: I went into the courts and I started digging in my son's case file. They had a jailhouse liar that testified against my son. His name is Avito and he benefited from testifying against my son. Anna Nicolazzi vouched for his truthfulness. She covered for him, essentially. What I found in the courthouse file was that he benefited over and over and over again from his misconduct. He was in a drug program, and if he was to absconder the drug program... He was facing three and a half to seven years in prison, and he did absconder. and then he called the district attorney's office, and she, she brought him to his warrant hearing court appearance. So instead of going to jail, he went home. She did not disclose that to the jury or the defense or even the judge. You're supposed to disclose if someone who is testifying any benefits that they receive. And she didn't do that. So I've uncovered that. And that is the reason why we got a reversal. The appellate judges in uh, the second department... A panel of four judges recognized that as it being beneficial to my son. It should have been disclosed, and she purposely hid it. So they reversed the conviction, and now we are going back to court.
0: I'm so happy. Can, I mean, congrats What on a yeah, trial. What a, what a relief. What, is, a, what a journey. Did
2: I explain that well? I, yeah. <laughs> Lawyers can explain it better. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: you did great. Yeah, How does it go down with the veto? Let me
2: explain to you that the reason why it was reversed was— not actually what the jailhouse informant did. It's what the prosecutor did. We didn't even need John of to recant.
1: Oh, I get you. Okay. He
2: recanted his testimony and he actually cried. He said he was uh, riddled with guilt and he apologized to my son for lying. As it was explained to me by the lawyers, they said he didn't even need to recant. It's what she did is what the prosecutor did was hide the benefit that she gave him for his testimony and that was his incentive to lie was going to jail
1: he didn't need to recant it doesn't it, it's almost incidental what happened it's a fact that the prosecutor kept it hidden, hidden from wow right. wow
2: to, from the jury because the jury has a right to decide over all the evidence yeah she she cherry-picked mm. on what she was going to give that now the misconduct falls right in their office it's what they did. It's right. not what somebody on the outside did, right. like a juror.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now they're exposed. That's a great
0: point. It makes them look a lot worse in the long run. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. So how is John, how does John deal with this this roller coaster from from inside prison?
2: Well, Tim, it's not easy. He served all his 20s, the best years of his life, behind bars. And um, right now he's in Rikers, uh waiting to be dragged back to trial it took a toll on him we all know that rikers is a ni- not a nice place to be
1: the man that he's become in prison i mean we've read the things that he's written and
2: john Duke's blog it's right yeah. it's un- it's it's really he <laughs>
1: yes and it's really really unfortunate the situation that he's in but i i read what he's written and i think it's brilliant it's such a great representation of something that's so broken
0: well, he's learned how to channel that anger, I think.
1: I mean, he's written about that. Like, you yeah. either do this or you, or you just give up. Yeah. But he, he obviously hasn't given up. And no. It's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, you will love John. He's got such a beautiful spirit.
0: I can't wait to meet him, Doreen. He, yeah, he's
2: a wonderful man.
0: Yeah. So how did Holt McCallany get to read uh, a passage of John's poetry? We're friends. Oh, really?
2: Yes. We've been friends for quite some time right now. Holt is on Netflix on Mindhunter. Yeah, we love that show. Yeah. And he's a big fan of John's. Uh, they write to each other. He calls him. You know, I don't even know how we became friends. It's a good 10 years ago or more.
1: And what's the name of the one that he read? Watch oh.
2: of the Super Rats? Yes. That yeah. Is it. yes.
1: yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
2: March of the Super. It's pretty good. That right? is very good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and Tim played it. We were at our studio and Tim played it. And he's like, oh, this is a guy from Mindhunter.
0: Yeah. I was like, and I'm how did like, I a guy from yeah. Mindhunter. <laughs>
2: yeah. You want to hear a funny story? Sure. Um. So Holtz is in. Uh, Clinton Correctional Facility with John, and they take one of those Polaroids together. John sends it to me. You know, I made some copies. It's him and Holt standing together. And then John asked me for the photo back. So I had to send it back, and it got rejected. The correction officer said, We are not allowed to have photos of two inmates in the same picture they thought that holt was an inmate
0: <laughs> he's so authentic
2: not allowed to have two <laughs> inmates in the same photo
0: that's odd oh, oh, holt's got a kick
2: out of that one <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: They show his agent say look I, ca- I can play prisoner i'll be yeah be a convict. yeah what is what is john going to do when he gets out
2: oh i, I don't know well he's studied law
0: mm-hmm.
2: he's been in the law library for what 12 years i do know that we're going to go on a very long vacation <laughs> first Great idea. Yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah. Yeah, clear your heads. Mm -hmm. Have a steak. Yeah, go swimming in the (laughs) ocean.
2: Well, that's something that uh, you said the ocean. John said to me one day, he said, Ma, I'm starting to forget what it feels like to put my feet in the sand.
1: 13 years? Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
2: Yeah, close to four. I'm starting to forget. Actually, he said, I'm starting to forget what sand feels like. So I know as soon as it gets out, I'm taking him to the beach. That's great.
1: Mm-hmm. He's going to be such a huge advocate for for the um, wrongfully, wrongfully convicted. convicted. Yeah. I mean, just even those, even like the statements like that. People just forget. I mean, there are people in prison, obviously, that should be there. Yes. But people in prison for minor charges, at you know, like marijuana charges, or something silly. There's so many people that shouldn't be in prison that oh, could yeah. be rehabilitated. There's a different thousands way. in prison mm, that yeah.
2: should not be there.
1: And you hear like one detail like that, Miss 35 and 0, because of you, this person's starting to forget how sand feels like. You're, you're you're dripping humanity away from this person.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Which
1: is why. <laughs> which is why I'm so enamored by you and what you did. I I would lose my mind if I took on a new identity and I was trying to get people to talk.
0: Probably lost your mind, like, countless times during those years you know like i think in the way that lance is saying he would have lost his mind i'm sure that's happened
1: lost my temper yeah 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 yeah, like flowing control control yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah
2: Yeah, i beat up my pillow (laughs) 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 i beat up my pillow uh, many many times yeah but i'm a thinker you know Mm -hmm. you just keep thinking and and you have to be a little gutsy Mm -hmm. to do it and i wasn't gonna quit you know i'm gonna prove my son's innocence
0: where's d quinn now
2: uh, she hung up our wig. <laughs> she hung up
0: a wig. Is there a little part still inside you though?
2: Um, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, I'm a mom. You know, we go through uh our ups and downs and like you said, you know, we need a lot of patience to do this.
1: I used a bad analogy, but thank you.
2: Yeah. <laughs> a lot of patience. You know, and I know that any mother would do this if they could. I was able to do it because you know, I had the means and the opportunity to do it. I wasn't gonna just lie down. We'll yeah. do anything we can, make this transformation, join a gym, buy a bike, buy a wig. Cause at one time I was riding a w- uh, with a wig back and forth on the bike. That didn't work. <laughs> because one time it flew off and I, <laughs> I ran it over with my bike. And then it was so expensive, I went back to go get it. <laughs> So there was a lot of mishaps believe me. Yeah. And and you're doing this while you're very nervous. Right. You know. Right. And you know what? You lose a lot of family too because you're so busy with your other life that you miss out on uh graduation parties and uh birthday parties and Christmas and New Year's and Easter. I didn't socialize with my own family and I have a big family. And we would sit down and have tea or coffee together, and my sisters were saying like, um, did I do anything wrong? They were trying to figure out why am I not, you know, hanging out with the family and anymore. And you can't
1: tell them. No way. Right, right. They were
2: shocked when they read it in Vanity Fair.
1: When did juror number eight find out that this person that he thought he knew and made friends with was, was, was not that person?
2: Okay, I submitted the tapes to my son's lawyer And then somebody in his office, I believe, leaked it. And the next thing you know, it was in Vanity Fair and on the front page of Every News. So a reporter actually knocked on his door and told him, do you know her? And he said, yes, that's Dee Quinn. (laughs) Then the reporter came to my door and said, I told Jason Allo, and Jason Allo said, that what I did wasn't right, <laughs> and how dare I? How, <laughs> how, how what I did? What a joke! Well, what his about head, what he did? His yeah. head
1: must have been spinning. Yeah, I would have. I would have loved to have been there when the reporter s- knocked on his knocked his door. on his door. And he's no, that's D Quinn. Now I've known her for about six, six, seven months. Right? Like, mm, no, it's not though. And she
2: disappeared. I disappeared yeah. on him. <laughs> all of a sudden, I didn't answer the phone anymore. But fun. nothing about him convicting my son because he believed he was Jewish. Nothing about knowing all his friends, reading all the newspapers. Not, none of that. That wasn't wrong in his eyes. I remember he told me that it was written in the stars that he be selected on this particular um, case. It was written in the stars.
1: Is this destiny? That's what it he's was, saying. Yeah, it was destiny. What a loser! Took
2: yeah to connect yeah. uh, Juka, and they say that I have some nerve. Why? Because I'm not a private investigator. Because I'm not a father, a uncle. Why? Because I'm the mother.
1: Because you went against the system. Right. That's your nerve. Right. Right. Good. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, they wanted p- to
2: punish me right. for yeah. exposing them. But the bottom line is, no matter what you think about me, let's give this kid a fair trial.
0: Absolutely right. So speaking of uh, a fair trial, so now three out of four of who helped to convict John, right, have recanted. That's the jailhouse informant. Um, that's Aloe, and that was John's ex-girlfriend.
2: Aloe is the juror so he doesn't count He's not a a witness okay yes three out of four witnesses for the prosecution Mm -hmm. has recanted and admitted that they lied they lied in 2005 and that's why the jury came back with guilty with in addition the corrupt juror who pushed that jury into uh, a conviction
0: so I guess my question now is what the hell is the prosecution's strategy now that they've lost all their star witnesses? What the hell are they even doing this trial for?
1: It sounds like They don't it have should, a chance. Yeah, it sounds like they should just show up just for formality's sake and be like... Yeah.
2: Well, we have a theory. Yeah. Throw John in Rikers Island, torture him because we call it the torture chamber, yeah. and then hopefully he'll cop out to something he didn't do just to get the hell out of there. After 13 long years of suffering and Uh, misconduct after misconduct after misconduct. Everybody recanted. The juror committed serious misconduct. The prosecutor committed serious misconduct. These witnesses came forward, said they were riddled with guilt. They lied, and the reason why they lied, and now they're going to drag my son back to trial? Come on, let him free. Let him go.
1: On top of, there, there was no connective evidence.
2: There was zero DNA. N- absolutely no forensic evidence, no eyewitnesses, nothing against John. Just these liars.
0: And they have the real murderer in custody. Like he's Correct. in jail convicted on murder. Correct. So, like, John is not, he's not the scapegoat here you know he's not like the person they're trying to keep in jail as the murderer
2: they're protecting the prosecutor because of what she did to get the conviction they're protecting her take a hit but she's no longer in that office Mm -hmm. and charles hines who is who was our uh brooklyn district attorney is gone now he had left in disgrace Uh, he should be held responsible also he is gone. So what are they holding on to this for? You know, our new district attorney had promised that he was going to take a look at all these old cases. And this is an old case. Take a look at it. Take a close look at it. And if you claim that you are a truth seeker, uh, you will let John go. Yeah,
0: you'll if see. This doesn't
2: fall on him. Right. It falls on the previous uh, prosecutors.
0: Now, did they just recently send John to Rikers?
2: Yeah, he's there about four weeks.
0: So only after they they ordered the retrial did they send him there.
2: Yeah, because they bring you down from upstate. First of all, it's illegal to hold you in maximum security prison when you are presumed innocent, mm. which should have happened mm-hmm. was bail. Yeah. But the judge did not give John bail so he could sit home and prepare for his case May 1st. There was no bail. And he's thrown into Rikers Island. I'm only guessing that they're probably trying to squeeze him Mm. to cop out to something that he did not do. Just to be free. They're dangling the keys in front of him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is is like the final test for John.
2: What would you do if you were in prison for 13 years and now you're in the dungeon and they say plead guilty and you could go home? Time served. Or go back to trial May 1st, and what we did to you the first time, we could easily do it to you a second time. We could find 10 jailhouse informants. We could threaten and coerce many people to get up there for a deal. And you can't blame people sometimes. They're so desperate, they're willing to say anything. Mm -hmm. And with the jailhouse liar, he was facing seven years. They threatened John's girlfriend of 19 years old to expose very delicate and personal information about her. So she cracked. And then after 10 years, she comes clean, crying hysterical that she lied. And this is the reason why I lied. Anasigal Nicolazzi threatened her over and over again. And finally, she said she will lie. And they practiced a script on what she would say when she testified against John. John was beyond devastated when he seen his girlfriend testifying. This hurts me, it hurts me. Mm. Because this girl was a part of our family. Yeah, But I knew that they did something to her, for her to get up there and lie. So she signed an affidavit, stating, you know, step by step of what they did to her. And I, I knew it all along. What are they gonna do to john on may 1st are they going to do it all over again and you know what's going to happen i'm going to expose them again yeah i am going to find out the misconduct and i am going to expose them and my message to the public and to all those who are wrongfully imprisoned don't give up it's a needle in a haystack but it's out there it's there you just have to have somebody on the outside digging for you and it's an uphill battle believe me it's an uphill battle because you need money, you need all, all sorts of resources, and most people don't have it. No.
1: Most people don't know where to start with that.
2: Right. No, it's so hard, and they know that. Prosecutors know that, and that's why they just keep putting right. p- people in prison and figure, oh, I'll take them 20, 30 years before they unravel this mess. And then they excel and get rewarded for their convictions and become judges and uh, what did Anna Sigal Nicolazzi? she's a host on some ID discovery channel. So they get rewarded. That is the incentive. They get rewarded.
1: How often do you uh, visit John?
2: Well, now that he's in Rikers, uh, once a week. Okay. Yeah, it's a horrendous place.
0: How excited was he to hear about, or uh, maybe not excited, but how? how was it telling him about the retrial?
2: John is hopeful. Yeah. What tends to happen to you when um, you're in prison is you try not to get too happy because the rug is always pulled out from under you. They look for ways to manipulate the prosecutors, our government judges, too. Not all judges are bad, Mm -hmm. okay? There are those good judges that will follow the law. Well, John's just trying to stay even keel because they have all the power and we have none.
1: I mean, just your, your will alone is pretty powerful. So
0: Yeah, and probably pretty scary if you're on the other side of it.
1: Yeah.
2: There are 2.3 million people incarcerated. Mm. How many people get the opportunity to tell their story? L- not many. Yeah. You know? I mean, this is a gift that I have right now. I am John's voice. I'm his voice.
0: Well, we will do anything we can to help so like yeah, wha- seriously yeah thank you yeah and others
2: yeah because of i have a lot of cases <laughs> i have hundreds of them
1: you take on other cases i
2: do oh. i do the best i can to help i get letters at least maybe 30 40 letters a week i have a big pile of letters of begging for help wow. from all different prisons and i do what i can sometimes they need the simplest thing like copies of something or go down to get pull their case file and make copies for them, make phone calls for them. Whatever anybody could do to help inmates, please help.
1: Wow. And this is something that you started to do after John's situation happened. What were were you before this? A mom. Okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) A mom. (laughs) (laughs) They're desperate men and women. Yeah. They have nobody on the outside.
1: And they're human. And they'll turn into animals if you treat them like animals. Exactly. And what do you want? Right. Then, yeah. then, you know, it's self perpetuating. And then what do you got? Mm-hmm. You got a bunch of animals in cages.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Just as it's never really computed in my head that it. it
2: are they rehabilitated?
1: No, right there. Right. There's yeah. no rehabilitation there.
2: And when they do get out, they are going to be our neighbors. Yeah. Right? So wouldn't it make sense if we actually rehabilitated those who. Did commit crimes right. and maybe get them an education, uh, treat them with respect. They're not treated mm-hmm. with respect. They're beat. Yeah, they they're tortured. They're starved. I could tell you a million stories. You know what's crazy too? That um, in these prisons they have people who have schizophrenia. Depression, all kinds of mental illness that actually belong in hospitals, mm-hmm. but they are incarcerated. And then when they don't follow the rules because they uh, don't comprehend the rules, they get beat and tortured.
1: Yeah. It's like, w- it's barbaric.
0: Yeah, it's a huge problem in yes. this country with mental illness too. Yes. Right, yeah.
2: They belong in hospitals. Yeah. And to be cared for and maybe medicated, whatever yeah. it is they need. Not in prison.
0: The first trial lasted two weeks? Yes. Okay. So is, do you think you expect this one to last as long or not quite as long?
2: Um, first of all, how are they going to have a trial? Who are they going to drag out of the woodwork? Mothballs. They're going to have to threaten some more people. Yeah. Uh, you know, make some deals. Yeah,
0: it's probably pe- people in Rikers right now. Right. That, you know, they, pay, they may try for. Working on. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're I working
2: on people in Rikers that John supposedly confessed yeah. to. But exactly. We,
0: we will be here oh to uh, expose yeah. the lies if they attempt something like that again. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling the next time we see you, John's going to be with you.
2: Oh, that would be a blessing. Yeah, and then we will, together, we will fight for those who have been wrongfully
3: convicted. Love
0: that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Doreen.
2: You're welcome.
3: The March of the Super Rats by John Charles Juca. It's a common cliche that everyone suddenly finds God when they come to prison. Misery and despair are religion's most successful recruiters. When I first came to prison, the old timers used to tell the young wild boys, they're going to make your ass a believer. Now I know what they meant. People often tell me, leave it to the man upstairs. But that doesn't sound proactive enough for me. If the man upstairs sent his only son on a suicide mission, I don't even want to know what kind of excitement he has in store for me. As a young kid, I first saw a metaphor about faith when watching Indiana Jones cross over an invisible bridge that was only there if you really believed it was actually there. The moment you had doubt that the invisible bridge existed, it disintegrated and you fell to your death. It was a pretty good representation to show people how faith is the bridge that gets you there. Then I grew up and became a skeptic. I saw religion as a crutch. And my thoughts were reinforced in college when I read philosophers like Nietzsche, who said a casual stroll through the insane asylum shows that faith does not prove anything. Nietzsche is the same guy who wrote the essay, God is Dead. But then again, while I was in school, I also used to tell all my nerdy classmates that being able to finish a whole book didn't prove anything either. When I came to prison, my skepticism turned to outright cynicism because of my situation, my appeal denials, and because of the people around me. Men starved of hope, the wrongfully convicted and the unforgiven alike. Usually the guys I see with strong faith are the ones afflicted with what I call delusional optimism. They have forever, natural life sentences, or football numbers, double digits, yet they know they are going to win their appeal and go home, as opposed to dying in prison. The problem is, many of them will turn out to be wrong. Statistics say that less than 1% of appeals are granted at each level. Ben Franklin said that the easiest thing to deceive is ourselves. I understand that a positive attitude may help them overcome feelings of futility and propel them to do an appeal at all. A little faith may mean the difference between being paralyzed with negativity or finding a reason to fight on, sitting down to write a blog post or sitting down to write a suicide letter. But I don't want to have faith if it means living in fantasy land. I want the clear-eyed truth. Is faith a crutch or does it have power and validity in itself? In almost every dictionary I check, the word belief is somewhere in the definition of faith. A range of scientific experiments were also done that led to a phenomenon called the Pygmalion effect, where expectations and beliefs in a host of different tests became a reality. In one experiment, teachers were told that some random students were gifted. These students ended up outperforming their peers, even though they weren't really gifted. You may think there was some confirmation bias here. Or maybe the teachers treated these students differently, which affected them. It's possible. But in other experiments, rats were given to scientists with instructions to have them race through mazes. Some rats were labeled super rats, meaning they were genetically engineered to be super fast or super smart. But in reality, the scientists were misled about the abilities of the rats, and they were actually all the same. When the races began, the ones labeled super dominated consistently. The expectations and beliefs of the scientists, who were lied to in order to foster true belief, became a reality. Scientists have also discovered that the placebo effect only works when people believed they would be healed because of taking a pill. Quantum physics has also proven through experiments that the mere observation of or intent to observe an experiment through recording devices changed the outcome of the observed reality. When no one is watching, light behaved as a wave. But as soon as an observer comes into the picture, the light waves collapsed into particles, as if they knew they were being watched. Scientists say that this is evidence that everything in the universe is a potential something until consciousness influences it into a definite something. Quantum physics is called the science of probability. That sounds to me like the blueprint and foundation of the universe is a science of possibility. Examples like this seem to back up belief intention, the law of attraction, and faith. These things may just have an energy all their own. In the Bible, Abraham is the father of faith. For those of you who don't know the story, it's basic. As a test of faith, God told Abe to kill the one thing he loved most, his son. Abraham obeyed and was about to do it when God intervened and spared Abe's son. It seems like a simple parable with a straightforward lesson. The problem is applying it to reality. It's easy to admire Abe with the distance that fiction creates, if it's fiction. But most people in the real world with that kind of faith are narrow-minded fanatics or wild-eyed wackos who fly planes into buildings. Or are they? Abraham is revered all over the world. But what would you do if your neighbor peeked over the picket fence and said, God told me to kill my son today? That's troubling. But what I think about is this thought. Does my salvation from this place or from earth hell depend on having the kind of belief, will, and faith that Abraham had? Is everything a test? What if life is a battleground? When they tell you your faith is not rational and doesn't make sense, tell them that the rational man adapts himself to his surroundings. The irrational man persists in trying to adapt his surroundings to himself. Therefore all change depends on the irrational person with love in their heart. Faith itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. James 2:17. So have some faith so you're not a miserable bastard. Otherwise, no one will want to be around you. But in the meantime, fight until your dying breath. Written by John Charles Juca on July 30th, 2017.